My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, good morning. I'm Shane. I get to be part of the teaching team here, and I'm excited to, to launch into a new teaching series here. Uh, just to give you a heads up, or this in this series, we're going to be swimming in some deep waters. You can see there here. And we're going to examine some questions that, that a lot of us ask along the way in life. And these are the kind of questions that tend to bubble up from the places uh, deep down. And our, our natural reaction to them a lot of time when they bubble up is to try to push them back down. You know, difficult questions like, you know, have you ever been in a place in life where you want to believe in the goodness of God, but then something happens. It derails you and you end up questioning God. What you believed was true about life and about God, you now wonder if it is true. We ask these questions. These questions, you know, as my life as a pastor have been asked by a number of people. For example, uh, friends of ours who were directors of a Christian camp. And they lived on the camp there with their three young sons. And their life took a a tragic turn when their middle son, their five-year-old, comes screaming in the door, yelling about how their youngest son, their three-year-old, had fallen into a a drainage pond. And their seven-year-old son went in to rescue him, even though he didn't know how to swim. And this friend of ours runs across that camp and gets to that pond. There's no evidence of either of them. He dives in in that murky water where he can't really see, and he's swimming around, flailing around, and he bumps into something, he grabs it, and he pulls it out, and it's his three-year-old son, unconscious and not breathing. And he faced a choice that no parent wants to face. Do I go and try to find the other son and leave this one to die, or do I try to rescue this one and leave the other son to die? Where is God in that? Or another friend of mine, a, a, a wonderful lady, devoted in so many ways and, and gave up a lot of herself and her life so that her husband could start the business of his dreams. And several years later, he's arrested for possession of child pornography. And her life is completely turned upside down. And she bears a level of shame and a level of hardship uh, that was no fault of her own. And she's asking a question, do I stay in this marriage? I know the vows that I made, but do I stay here? Another good friend who left job, career, a place where she'd lived for a long time, a place that she loved to live, to, to go with her husband, to move across the country here to this area to start a new job and not... Two months later, he sits her down and says, we didn't move necessarily because I wanted this job as much as I was trying to break off the affair that I've been having for months with her best friend. And he not only confesses that to her, but he says, I no longer love you. I want a divorce. 
I want to marry her. She is the true love of my life. And now she's left in a new city. Not on, no, no support network, no job, emotionally devastated and left to raise her two kids, mostly on her own. And did I mention in each of these cases, people I knew well had a deep abiding of faith in God and were devoted sacrificially in so many ways to following Jesus? You know, as, as followers of Jesus, we are tempted to believe that once we give our lives to Jesus, we will no longer have to struggle. But any honest reflection on the Bible and any honest reflection on life and faith will tell us that is simply not true. It's simply not true. Even the best lives contain tragic turns. So what we need is we need a helpful guide to help us navigate those tragic turns so that we can still find hope even when it's dark. And my friends, we have a helpful guide. And his name is Habakkuk, found in our Bibles. Now, Habakkuk, you may not know where that is in the Bible, and it's kind of a funny name, but he really is a helpful guide. He's been a helpful guide to me over the years on a number of different occasions. And then last summer, uh, one of the pastors that I go to, that I learned from a lot, I really appreciate, wrote a book and it was called Hope in the Dark. His, his name is Craig Groeschel. And he examined this book of Habakkuk as well when, to navigate the, the challenges he was facing personally as well as as a pastor navigating this, these, these uh, roads with others. And so what I wanted to do, and I've been looking forward to doing this, is I, I want to I take thought of what I've learned along the way and a lot of what I learned from Pastor Craig and share it with you so that you can have encouragement and that you will have a helpful guide for those unwelcome and unexpected turns in life. Now, before I dive in, I want to, do want to give you a bit of a warning, and that is that this will not be today, this will not be what you might call a sitcom sermon. Now, how many of you grew up watching sitcoms? You know, Pastor James talked about his, you know, happy days a couple weeks ago, and maybe in your era it was Cheers or Friends or The Office or Parks and Rec or whatever it was that you watched. Do you know that sitcoms, they all follow the same formula? You have this, these people that you love, and they're gathered together, and they're happy, Right? And then something is introduced into their lives that kind of puts them in some kind of peril. It could be funny peril, it could be tragic peril, but puts them in some kind of peril. And then over the course of 30 minutes, including commercial breaks, all the problems are resolved and they're left satisfied and happy again. And our favorite characters are happy. Did you know that most sermons are sitcom sermons? That's not bad. It's actually a very effective way of communicating. But a pastor will stand up front here like I'm doing, right? And he'll talk about something that we can all relate to in everyday life. And then we'll introduce a tension, something that's difficult to deal with, like, like I just did, right? And then we'll go to God's word, the Bible, and we'll find the solution to that problem. And then by the end of the sermon, wrap it all up so that you can go home and eat your lunch with a sense of peace and satisfaction that God is good and life is good, right? Give you a heads up. Today will not be a sitcom sermon. It's because most of life does not follow a sitcom. The problems are not resolved in 30 minutes or even 30 days or sometimes even 30 years. Sometimes you lose your job and you don't find a new one. In fact, not only are you unemployed for a few months, you're unemployed for years. And when you do finally find a job, it's way below your education level and you feel like a failure. Sometimes you love your spouse, you have a great marriage, 
and your spouse leaves you, and, and you find yourself in a courtroom, and you're hearing accusations against you that you never imagined possible. You're blamed for everything that's wrong. They're not taking any responsibility, and you're left all alone. Sometimes you go to the doctor with a, with a cough, thinking you're going to get some antibiotics, and the doctor tells you you have cancer. But you buckle down, and you're going to fight that cancer, and you go through chemo, and you rally your prayer warriors and your community around you, and you beat cancer, and you thank God. And a couple of years later, that cancer comes back greater than ever. And you wonder, God, where are you? And then, inevitably, you come to church and some well-meaning Christian says, brother, sister, just trust in the Lord. Just let go and let God And though their theology is not bad and their intentions are probably good, your reaction in that moment is you want to follow what the Bible says and you want to lay hands on them. (laughs) Because in that moment, your faith is wrecked and you feel all raw and, and discombobulated and just all over the place. And you need a helpful guide in that moment. You know God could do something and he doesn't. And you're left wondering why. This is where Habakkuk is coming from. So we'll be in the book of Habakkuk for the next three weeks because it has three chapters. Today, we're going to walk through chapter one, which is not a sitcom sermon. First of all, we need to know who is this Habakkuk character. Well, you find Habakkuk in the Old Testament. He's part of what's called the minor prophets. And just so you know, they're not called the minor prophets because they couldn't make the big leagues. They're just shorter than the major prophets, if you didn't know that. Habakkuk lived and wrote about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And when you read Habakkuk, you quickly hear that he's a different kind of prophet. Most of the prophets spoke for God to the people. Habakkuk spoke for the people to God. His his country, the nation of Judah, had been blessed for years but now, in Habakkuk's time, they're, instead they're experiencing a corruption and deception, especially in leadership. And as a result, they were hurting and they were experiencing poverty. They're wondering where their God was. And 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk unleashes a complaint to God, expressing a lot of the very same questions that we have. So let's dive in. Habakkuk chapter 1. And in verse 1, it says, This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. So a couple things to highlight. First of all, this name, Habakkuk, you know, it's a strange name. But what's good and helpful for us to know is that it actually provides the theme for his book. Habakkuk's name means to embrace and to wrestle. To embrace and to wrestle. Habakkuk did everything he did to hold on to God, even as he was wrestling with him. Embrace and wrestle. Verse 1 also says that Habakkuk had a message. He received a vision. And the word behind, the, the, word, the Hebrew word behind that this was the idea that, that he had a sense of, of utterance, this, this burden, this, this sense of doom. He received a dooming, burdensome vision. And so what he's doing is he's going to God with that vision on behalf of the people. So in verse 2, we see him respond this way. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? 
Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. Does that sound familiar? This could be written today, right? And it voices the cry of our hearts. I love Habakkuk's honesty. He's real. God, I know you can do something. Where are you? I have asked over and over and over and you do nothing. Habakkuk has the same problem with God that we sometimes have. First of all, he says there in the first verse, he says, he says God doesn't seem to care. Habakkuk is saying, you're, you're not doing anything to alleviate our suffering. You have the power to help us, but you're not. Why not? Where are you? God doesn't seem to care. The second thing is, is God doesn't seem fair, right? He sees all this injustice and he's like, God, do you see this too? I mean, how many of you are brave enough to admit that if you were God, you would do it differently? You would do things differently. Come on, do I have any? Come on, I know. You know, I know you do things differently. Of course, some of you are thinking, I ain't raising my hand in church. God is going to strike me down or something there, right? I'm not going to do that. Because you're wondering, is this even okay? Is this okay? Can I question God? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Isn't that unholy or something? But what we can know is that there are many people in the Bible who question God. Not only Habakkuk here, but you can know that two-thirds of the Psalms, you know, the worship book of the Bible, are, contain elements of complaint to God. Entire books are written in the Old Testament. You have Lamentations, Jeremiah, you have Job, you know, who are raging and against the sense of injustice that they see. Even Jesus on the cross. I mean, here's this, the one who is perfect in every way and bore your sins and my sins and the sins of all humanity. I mean, talk about, let's talk about injustice, right? While he's on the cross, why have you forsaken me? God, where are you? We all get there. And can we admit that we struggle with it? Because when we first came to Jesus, we dreamt of a God who would rescue us from our problems. I mean, many of you I know could tell the story of how, of how you were lost and broken and how you heard the good news that there is this God who loves you, even in spite of your frailty, and, and who, died, who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. You, 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 you were amazed by the grace and mercy of this God. And so you gladly received that free gift of life in his name, and you felt free. You were on a mountaintop. Life was good. I mean, you'd come to church and, and in each week you'd hear the message from the pastor and it was like God was speaking right to you. You couldn't believe it. And then you'd, you'd leave with a little skip in your step and you'd get in your car and then you'd turn on the radio and it was your favorite song. And then after that song was done, it was your second favorite song. And you get on Highway 26 singing along with the windows open and there's no traffic on Highway 26. And, and you're heading down and you go over to the mall and even and the parking lot is full and you pray a little prayer. God, would you open up a parking spot and one opens up there right in front of the door you need to go in. And you've been praying and asking God for, for a life, you know, for a, a loving companionship. And, and the clerk at the checkout starts to flirt with you a little bit. You know, life is good. And you'll tell anybody that listens that God is good because life is good. Then in subtle ways, life becomes not so good. 
You come on Sunday morning and the sermon was, eh, maybe for somebody else that week. You leave and you get in your car and it's that annoying song in the radio. You know the one they play over and over? I mean, why if they have thousands of songs that they could play, they say the same ones over and over. So you turn to another station, it's the same song. You get on Highway 26 parking lot. A Sunday afternoon, really? You get to the mall and you circle around and around and around and you pray and ask God for a parking spot. And instead of a parking spot, open up, somebody backs into your front fender. And then something really bad happens. Your daughter gets sick and she doesn't get better. Your spouse leaves you. You pray for grandma, she dies anyway. That mentor, the one who guided you through so many things and who inspired you, completely blows it. It happens to all of us. That's what life does. And at some point, every follower of Jesus encounters what Henry Blackaby in his classic book, Experiencing God, called a crisis of belief. God, where are you? Do you even care? Can you even see me? And at that point, most of us think we really only have one of two options. What many of us do, well-intentioned, is we deny or pretend or try to suppress it. We try to think, no, 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 this isn't really happening. God is good. God will take care of it. I'll be okay. Or on the other side of the spectrum, sadly, many people decide, if God doesn't care about this, I'm done. Maybe people you know have done that. Maybe you've said that. I've tried church. I've tried God. I've tried the Bible. Didn't work. I'm out. There seems to be those two options. But Habakkuk offers a third option, and that is to embrace and to wrestle. God, I don't get it. I'm confused. I'm questioning, but I'm not letting go of you. I'm not going to give up on your ways. And when you do this, sometimes life gets better. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it gets worse. Here's a, the challenge of life with God. True, in, true intimacy with God is not discovered on the mountaintop. True intimacy with God is found by clinging to his loyal love in the valleys of life. It's like what David wrote in that favorite Psalm, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You, my God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the valley, we discover the central truth of Habakkuk chapter 1. Honestly acknowledging your doubts is the first step towards building faith in God. Honestly acknowledging your doubts is the first step towards building a deeper faith in God. Now, I do need to clarify what I mean by faith because many of us see faith as a, as a system of belief, a list of truth statements to affirm. But faith is far more than that. The picture of faith we get in the Bible is, is one of relational trust. Relational trust. The very thing, it's the glue that holds the, every relationship together if it's going to last the long haul. In fact, I'm, I, I, funny that psychologists discovered this by studying married couples, couples who had been married 50 years or more. 
because they wanted to know the secret of long-term love. And many of us think, well, if somebody's been married for that long, you know, maybe they just had, it's because they had so many things in common or because they never argue or fight or some other reason that it made it easier for them. But the psychologist said that wasn't true. The couples that lasted a long time, they had the same kind of problems, the same levels of troubles. You want to know what the secret sauce is for long-term love? They discovered it's that you have the ability to repair relational ruptures. That's how they put it. You have the ability to repair relational ruptures. You see, every relationship experiences ruptures in trust, big and small. Every relationship. The question is, what are you going to do when you get there? And can you repair them? Do you know how? And those who hold on to each other, even as they wrestle through the conflict and the hardship, discover there's a love on the other side of the struggle, a loyal love that you cannot taste except by working through that and hanging on to each other. The problem is few are willing to endure the struggle. At the first hint of trouble, we're all like, peace out. I'm out of here. I don't need this. Similarly, if you interview any person who possesses a deep abiding faith in God, you talk to them and you will hear story after story of how they navigated through and clung to God through some deep, dark valleys. We all get there. But through Habakkuk, what we learn is that God invites our complaint. God, where are you? This doesn't seem fair. Habakkuk offered his complaint, and God answered him. We see that in verse 5. The Lord replied, Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if somebody told you about it. Doesn't that sound exciting? Can you just feel it? Can you feel the excitement? Can you feel a sense of anticipation here? Finally, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Finally, you're going to do what's right. Finally, you're going to relieve the pain. Finally, you're going to bless us and you're going to prosper us. We're going to be utterly amazed. Now, if this were a sitcom sermon, this is where I would tell a success story. Something like what happened to me in the early 2000s. After a couple of years that were among the most difficult in my life, where our marriage survived, it was surviving by a thread, where my job just wasn't a good fit and I was struggling with it. In fact, I was asking so many questions about God. And then a turn happened. A turn where not only was my marriage not struggling anymore, but we were thriving and I got a new job at work that was a really good fit and it has some really exciting elements to it. For example, I was responsible for personally evaluating luxury hotels for a major leadership retreat that I would help host. That was my job. I would fly to destination locales like Florida or Arizona and resort hotels would compete for my business by whining and dining me and a couple other guys. Not a bad dig. I mean, for example, they wouldn't just give me a room. They would give me a suite. And the other guy would get a suite too. And they would call me ahead of time and, and they'd just interview me, find out things that I liked, things that I didn't like. And, and I'd walk into my suite and there on the, on the coffee table was one of my favorite treats, a big, like lots of it, right? And a note saying, Mr. Folks, we're so glad you're here with us. They'd ask me questions like, would you like to try out our award-winning championship golf course? 
let me think about that. Yes, I would. <laughs> and they wouldn't just feed us dinner. Mm-mm-mm. They would feature their dining capabilities, which meant a private seating. No, nobody else in the room. And the head chef himself would come up with, try to, try to woo us and surprise us with the latest, his latest ideas. And we'd have these exquisite multi-course meals with, with select wines picked out for each course, a different wine for each course. And after we enjoyed those delicacies, I'd hear those magical words, Mr. Folks, would you like some dessert? <laughs> and, and this cart would wheel out with this, it's hard to even describe it, it would just melt in your mouth, right? And I'd get back to my room and there'd be another of my favorite treats right there. And there'd be another note that said, Mr. Folks, would you like to try out our spa after breakfast? And at the end of the day, after all that hard work, (laughs) I'd climb into that luxury bed with that 500 count Egyptian cotton sheets. And I'd lay my tired head on that premium 100% white goose down feather pillow. And I would think to myself, isn't God good? Do I have a witness in the congregation? That, my friends, is how a sitcom sermon would end. But this is not a sitcom sermon. So what was God's answer? What was it that he was just could not wait to reveal? We see that in verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down and devour their prey. On they come, all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone. And they are deeply guilty for their own strength is their God. So God basically says, you think this is bad? It's going to get a lot worse. It's going to be amazing. I am going to bring your most feared enemy, the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who swept across the whole earth, conquering and destroying everything in front of them. Yeah, them. In other words, it's going to get a lot worse. Can you imagine that? He said, I'm going to use your worst enemies to bring my justice against you for your sins. Now, of course, this makes absolutely no sense to Habakkuk, just like it would make absolutely no sense to us. Imagine your worst nightmare. That's God's rescue? That's God's answer to your complaint? I don't know about you, but I kind of want to say, is there anybody else up there I can talk to? And Habakkuk is having none of it. What I want to do is I want to read his response. But as I do so, and I, want, I, want, I want you to, to, to hear this kind of down in your bones, if you will. I want you to hear it. I want you to see it with your mind's eye. I want you to feel it. Because what we're about to get is a picture, an inside view into how he wrestles and embraces with God. He says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you are eternal. Right? He's embracing. Surely you do not plan to wipe us out. He's wrestling. 
Oh Lord, our God, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us with your skin, sin, sins. He says, oh Lord, our rock, he, he's embracing. He has sent us Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our sins. He's wrestling, but you are pure. You cannot stand the sight of evil. He's embracing. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Do you hear that? He's wrestling. He's embracing. And then he just kind of lets loose on God. Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? It's a difficult image. And then listen to the cold irony in verse 16. Then they will worship their nets and burn incest in front of them. These nets are the gods who have made us rich. Do you hear the irony there? You're going to take these idolaters, these ones who actually believe their strength is their God, their, their cleverness is their God. You're going to use them to bring justice against us. And then the last verse just oozes despair. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will you succeed? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests? And that's the end of chapter one. This is not a sitcom sermon. My friends, though, Habakkuk is in the Bible for a very important reason. It's there so we can know that God understands our pain and welcomes our complaint. Because of Habakkuk, I am confident that God would rather us yell at him than walk away from him. That's the key there. When we hit that crisis of belief, and we will hit that, what we need to do is, rather than running away from God, we need to let our doubts drive us to embrace God even as we wrestle with him. Because honestly, acknowledging your doubts is the first step towards a deeper faith, a deeper relational trust in your heavenly father. Developing genuine intimacy with God means bearing things that feel unbearable. It means worshiping God by trusting him in that moment of doom, bringing him your complaint embracing his strength when you feel weak. Earlier, I alluded to how Jesus, when he was on the cross, bearing the sins, your sins, my sins, the sins for all humanity. And in the middle of that, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And when he did so, you may not know, he was quoting a psalm, Psalm 22, which is a psalm of complaint. That's the first verse. What you may not know is that any teacher in Jesus's day, a rabbi like he was, there was they, they would quote the first verse of a psalm as a type of shorthand, as a way of invoking or applying that entire psalm to the situation. So if you read Psalm 22, which I would invite you to do this week, what you will see is a graphic depiction of crucifixion something that hadn't been yet been invented, in fact, wouldn't be invented for another thousand years. Psalm 22 foretold how Jesus would die and how God, through Jesus' death and resurrection, would provide a way for us to have a relationship with God. But that's not all. Psalm 22 ends with some amazing promises that God weaves into our hardship stories like a finely woven garment. So I just want to read this. The poor will eat and be satisfied. 
All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. My friends, for all who call in the name of Jesus, this is our destiny. So in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the sorrow, in the middle of the doubt and despair, I want you to embrace God, hold fast to him, even as you wrestle with him. He is worthy of our hope, even in the dark. Please pray with me. I do thank you, God, for Habakkuk, someone who wrote 2,600 years, and it's it's as if he was writing today. We, too, see injustice. We, too, wonder where you are, whether it's ourselves, we're walking through a dark time, or we look around the world around us, and we see and wonder, where are you? Thank you that your desire is for us to know you, that even when we rupture our trust in you, when we wander from you, you are faithful, you seek us out. You want to know us and you want to show us your love. If only we would turn to you. So would you find that no matter what's going on right now in our lives, we would turn and we would return to you. Open our hearts. We pray believing in the name of Jesus. Amen.